vast majority of the 150,000 people that have pledged to open their homes to Ukrainians are doing that from a position of such kindness and generosity. But we, we, we shouldn't assume that everyone is. And, and, and I say that, sadly, with, with the insight of working with this client group. So hello and welcome to the Still We Rise podcast series. I'm your host, Nathan. In response to the growing exodus of refugees from the Ukraine, for which the United Nations Refugee Agency estimates there are about 3.5 million people who've left to date um, and are displaced, the British government on the 14th of March announced a bespoke Homes for Ukraine scheme. Under this scheme, the British public have been asked to register and sponsor a refugee whom they would host in their home for a minimum or up to six months. Just under 150,000 people have signed up to be a host, demonstrating a remarkable sympathy for Ukrainian refugees. So to explain more um, about this bespoke Homes for Ukraine scheme, I'm delighted to be joined by Louise Calvi, who's Head of Services and Safeguarding at the charity Refugee Action. So welcome, Louise. Hello, Nathan. Thanks for having me. No, we're delighted to have you. So let's let's get straight into it. So there's matching. So far, what we know is that there's some 150,000 people who've signed up have to find a refugee for themselves. And your organization, alongside 16 and 15 other organizations, today wrote to, to Michael Gove, the leveling up secretary, expressing some concerns about how the scheme will work. So let's start with that, Louise. What, what, what are your concerns about the matching scheme? Principally, our concerns center on our insight to working with vulnerable refugees, understanding that a refugee proportionately is far more likely to be exposed to harm than people living in the country that they were born in. Um, we've already heard significant reports of trafficking risks around the region of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. We know that the majority of people being forced to flee are women and children because of the rules around conscription that most, most men are, are having to stay legally. And the government announcement around Homes for Ukraine offers absolutely no acknowledgement of the inherent risks surrounding refugees, particularly in terms of trafficking, inadequate housing standards. Those are things that we see anyway around vulnerable migrants, asylum seekers and refugees. But when you have a government that is saying, go and find a refugee mm. to sponsor with no regulation whatsoever around who is able to match refugees with UK hosts, that is the government actually exposing refugees to risk. At the moment, uh, a refugee has to find a host in order to apply for a visa. So we're seeing situations of incredibly vulnerable people advertising themselves on social media. 
for mm. someone to be willing to let them into their home. Now, you don't have to be an expert in refugee and asylum issues mm -hmm. to understand the inherent risks that creates for a human being. Moreover, someone with significant criminal intent can actually open their own matching system if they want to. Mm. So you've got the, the risks around social media and advertising on Facebook. You've also got the risk where an organised crime group could open a whole matching portal, put fictitious, fictitious addresses on there and advertise that to, to, to vulnerable Ukrainians, which will largely be women. Um, that's just shocking. It's, it's a shocking risk for government to run. Now, they're saying that, oh, but it's fine because local authorities will DBS people. Mm -hmm. But actually, when you read the guidance, the guidance says local authorities should DBS people before they arrive into the UK. And then it says, all your best endeavours. Mm -hmm. So there isn't a requirement to DBS check hosts before vulnerable refugees land uh, to their accommodation. And also, we know that it's quite easy for the type of criminal people we're talking about to overcome the requirements of a DBS check. That does not represent a significant, significant hurdle to a people trafficker. Um, and also, DBSs only record the things that you've been convicted of doing. Uh, so there are inherent risks in relying on a DBS system, which in itself doesn't catch everyone and also take six weeks to come through. So does that mean that we're not going to see any Ukrainian refugees coming through for six weeks? What we say is, if, if we're going to do it this way, then the, the government have to invest significantly in local authorities for experts in social care to be able to go and inspect the proposed home environment, talk to people, understand their intentions, but also support them to understand the reality of what that refugee is going to need when they land. We're looking at a situation here where there's no requirement for actually anyone to have spoken to that host and actually had a chat with them about what their intentions are. Um, that's a real worry and that's a significant hole in this guidance. I, I suppose people who, who listen to that response will, will think that I mean, these are people who are seeing what's happening in Ukraine and want to help. And as they, these are good people, they're good people who want to open up their homes and they hear your concerns. But how does the ordinary system operate when people claim asylum and are actually a refugee, when they get hosted in the ordinary hosting scheme? Aren't all those safeguards in place for this scheme? It, again, really good question. And you're quite right. The vast majority of the 150,000 people that have pledged to open their homes to Ukrainians are, are, are doing that from a position of such kindness and generosity. Mm -hmm. But we, we, we shouldn't assume that everyone is. And, and, and I say that, sadly, with, with the insight of working with this client group in the UK. Um, and, and the fact that there are people around them with criminal intent, with ill intent. Um, fortunately, there's a great deal of people around them with, with, with beautiful intent. Um, mm -hmm. and, and our job is to, to sift through 
those numbers and weed out the people that don't have good intentions. Your question around how hosting typically runs in the UK, because you're quite right, this isn't new. Hosting has existed for, for quite some time. If you take established providers such as, for example, Refugees at Home, mm-hmm. they're one of the biggest hosting charities in the UK. Now, what they do is a very, very robust hosting assessment. Again, they look for volunteer social workers, GPs. They will train those volunteers to do home assessments. And those professional people go out to the proposed home environment. They meet with the host. They vet the host. They check the host. They look at the home environment. And they make sure not just that that person is safe and the home environment is safe, but the host is approaching this aware of the commitment that they're making because you don't want a hosting relationship to fall apart you want for it to be a a really peaceful environment for both parties Mm. so that that person can rest acclimatize regroup and think about the next steps in their lives Um, we haven't built on any of that expertise in the announcements that we've seen so far. It looks very much like the government has thrown an idea out there, is cycling quite quickly to try and get guidance in place retrospectively, but that guidance doesn't build on what we already know about effective hosting, and it hasn't embedded the experts around this. So if, if I'm understanding you, correctly, Louise, you're saying that the government haven't consulted the refugee sector at all and are retrospectively doing this? The the, the consultation has not been meaningful. Uh, There hasn't been a lot of meaningful discussion Hmm. between the expertise that exists, both in terms of refugee resettlement support, Mm -hmm. like refugee action, uh, refugees at home who already do hosting, NACOM, NACOM, a whole network of Hmm. voluntary hosting arrangements. They, they haven't been embedded in this. Um, anti-trafficking organisations, they're not there. What we're seeing is government just telling us what's happening. And then we're waiting a few days, a week, for more guidance to come out and reading the guidance. I mean, we, I learned about this scheme on Saturday night, two weeks ago, by reading the newspapers. And thought, oh, right, that, 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 that's what we're doing, is it? Wow, okay. And they announced it. Um, and they, in that announcement, included a reference to light touch checks. Mm. It, light touch is not good enough. These are incredibly vulnerable people. And the vast majority of, of, of people coming forward to host, mm. I think, would fully expect checks. Mm. <laughs> I think everyone that I have spoken to have been surprised at the lack of checks, mm-hmm. but also surprised at the unwieldy bureaucracy around it. So you're asking Ukrainians to have valid passports, uh, marriage certificates, birth certificates of children, utility bills we've heard, everything. You're expecting them to leave with everything. But equally, you're not going to check that that host is approaching this with good intent or that that host realises the commitment that they're making that seems bizarre. Hmm. It does. It does seem bizarre. Um, most of the people who will come because of conscription, as you mentioned before, will be mothers and children 
So what will local authorities be doing? Because ordinarily, you'd have a social worker go to check to see whether a child can be housed in said property. Um, do, do local authorities have adequate resources for the numbers who, who could possibly come? What, what are your concerns about that? Absolutely. I mean, we, we know that social the, the, the local authorities are experiencing a social care crisis. There's an extreme lack of, of, of well-resourced social care um, infrastructure at local levels. We also know that they're bouncing out of COVID um, and, and still struggling to, to, to support people impacted through pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that local authorities' resources are stretched to the bone. The vast majority of risks around this scheme are going to fall to local authorities to 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 actually improvise uh, and use use their best intent in, in in that space. There's a real lack of resources um, around them, um, and a real lack of guidance and advice for them. They've never done this before. Mm. They've never done this before, and you know we've heard reports from local authorities of them trying to get into properties before people arrive and, and and sending whoever they have around it. So some local authorities are looking at sending in environmental health to do home inspections or, or even the fire service, all really well-intentioned. But actually what people need is a trained, professionally curious person in that environment, such as a, a, a someone qualified in social care. And actually, if you look at local authorities, that's the one team that is completely sideswiped with capacity problems. So, again, I come back to a lack of thought in mm. understanding the risks when you announce this program and actually piecemeal guidance coming out that isn't fully thought through but also isn't fully funded. I think people who are familiar with this podcast will, will have found it really curious that the department that are rolling out this program or the leveling up department rather than the home office. So in, in your view, Louise, would you have preferred that this whole scheme was rolled out by the home office who have loads of experience in resettling people and presumably would have had an infrastructure rather than the leveling up department having to stand this up from the beginning? That is that is a question I'm wrestling with, Nathan. You've, 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 you've cut straight to the heart of the, the debate inside me. Mm. Um, when the scheme was announced, I was, I was frightened. Uh, I'll be, be honest, you know, we're still, we're still supporting 11,500 Afghans that have been in hotels for eight, nearly eight months now. Mm. Um, uh, and, you know, asylum, the asylum system is broken in the UK. People waiting years for decisions, backed up in hotels or the lucky ones in their own sort of private accommodation. There, there is just awful housing standards, ceiling collapses, rat infestations. We've got barracks in the asylum system. We've got immigration detention still being used in the asylum system. And we saw this announcement and I thought, oh, so now we're going to have how many Ukrainians sleeping in people's spare rooms for six months? Where's the longer-term housing coming from? Where's the strategy in place here? Mm. Just no strategy here at all. Just constant reactive announcements without 
a longer term investment in a structural and strategic solution mm-hmm. to the vulnerable people that we have here and, and the vulnerable people that can't even get here. So I saw the announcement and I was, I, w- I was frightened. And um, I think there's a few voices in the refugee and asylum sector that was really quite relieved that it was levelling up, leading on this and, and not the Home Office because of the mess in asylum and re- refugee uh, mm. policy that that actually well maybe leveling up can bring something different here maybe leveling up can add 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 a different perspective on this maybe it's an opportunity of finding more structural and strategic solutions because goodness knows we're so tired mm-hmm. of seeing people failed by our government in this country but here we are i think a couple of weeks in and and you know it's it's not looking good and there have been times where i've thought Home Office wouldn't have done this, that Home Office would not have exposed people to this risk and the Home Office maybe would have worked with refugees at home and and built on that expertise because they knew it existed. Mm-hmm. I think levelling up or speaking at a different level to the local authorities we work with, you know, they're, they're very much, they have a different, uh, they have a different set of relationships with a different sort of dialogue. And so what's that, what, that has done is created quite a lot of really chaotic situations at a grassroots level mm-hmm. because different local authority divisions are responding to levelling up, whereas the Home Office would speak to a different element of the local authority. So you've got local authorities being pulled and pushed in lots of different directions and no one actually sitting down with them and saying, right, what problems is this going to create for you? How can we resource you to do that? What Not just financial resources, Mm-hmm. But how can we resource your expertise to do this? So actually, I, I really, I really wanted this to be something that could start to pull together an improved strategy around all refugee protection systems in the UK. Mm-hmm. But it, yeah, the early signs are not great around that. Yeah, you speak of the refugee protection systems that that currently exist. So most of the people who will host a Ukrainian refugee haven't had any sort of training or exposure to people who are suffering the trauma of having to have left their home. So things like post-traumatic stress disorder, the mental health challenges of knowing that their fathers and their brothers are conscripted and are still fighting in the war. What sort of infrastructure is required for all of these hosts to be able to cope with the number of issues that Ukrainians will be suffering for up to six months? I would say firstly, six months is an awfully long time to host someone. Hmm. It's much, much, much longer than typically you would see in a hosting arrangement. Again, I talk about building on the expertise, building on the wisdom that already exists in this space. And quite quickly, the organisations that are experts in this would have pointed out to DLUP that six months is verging on an unsustainable duration for hosting. It's a lot for a refugee. It's a lot for a host. You're asking a lot of people. Um, I, I think... 
The second thing I would say is there absolutely must be a training and support offer for hosts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at community sponsorship that Reset runs, um, they offer significant support to their community organisations that, that that set up to, to, to sponsor refugees into the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- that's just not there. There's no discernible um, training and support offer for, for, for hosts yet that we've seen in the guidance as it's emerged. I think that the third thing I would say is, I think critical to the success of this scheme is going to be funding and support to local authorities, which is there. They have said that they're going to support local authorities financially per person in the region of £10,000 per person, which is the same as the Afghan um, ARAP tariff, um, uh, ACRS tariff. Mm -hmm. So that's good. That's a positive. Local authorities will then need to spend that money on expert support for the refugees so that it's not all coming back to the host. So organisations that can help with universal credit, opening bank accounts, schools, GPs, local orientation. These are really tricky things and it's not something you should expect hosts to do. So local authorities will need to spend that money really wisely on that. And then the other thing I would say is you you reference mental health support. Local authorities will need to put specialist services in place for Ukrainian families. There is no reference whatsoever to any mental health support in any of the instructions so far today. It's going to fall down to local authorities to do that, unfortunately, out of the money that they're receiving per person. So um, there are brilliant mental health support organisations that specialise in uh, supporting people fleeing trauma of this nature. And local authorities will need to get those arrangements in place. The risk is that they don't. Local authorities are very busy, very stretched. And then you're going to see quite a lot of highly traumatised people without the mental health support that they so desperately need. Hmm. Okay, so typically, how long does does somebody stay in in a hosting scheme? It varies, but it's usually quite short term in nature. And it's usually transitionary. So hosting is usually used, typically, for example, um, if someone has fallen out of the asylum system, Mm -hmm. um, they've been refused, we need to get further representations in for them, um, or you're applying to the Home Office for um, accommodation for an asylum seeker, typically that's where you'd refer to a hosting organisation. And they would support that that person because they've got no recourse to public funds until right. they can go back into the asylum system. So usually it's short term while you can get a further representation in, find a legal representative for them. And then as soon as you can get them approved on support, they'll move out of the hosting arrangement and back into uh, accommodation support via the asylum system. That's not the exclusive role for it, mm-hmm. but it's where the hosting really, really comes into uh, it's like gold dust because without that hosting arrangement, mm-hmm. you've got nowhere to go with right. that refused asylum seeker mm-hmm. uh, because they're NRPF, they've got no money, yeah. uh, they've got nowhere to live. So, so hosting is temporarily, it's temporary, it's transitionary. Okay. Um, and there always has to be a move on. So you've always have, whenever we refer into hosting, we always refer in from the perspective of what's the move on route. My question, if I could, I would ask Michael Gove, 
what's the move on route here? That's that's the question I want to ask you, Louise. So you say it's transitionary. So after these six months, from what you understand, what what what's the leveling up secretary saying? Where what are people moving on to? I think that from what I've seen in the guidance um, and from, from what I've heard from various interviews, uh, the reference seems to come back to minimum of six months. And so, therefore, the implication being, well, the host can just, so the refugee can, can just stay with the host. Clearly, that's not sustainable. Um, and, 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 you know, we, we can do better. But we, hmm. we can do better than that. You know, that people have a right to a home of their own. Yeah. Um, you know, is it safe? Yes. Is it good enough for a little while? Yeah, absolutely. It's brilliant and beautiful of those people to volunteer to do that. Is that good enough for a long-term plan? Absolutely not. It's not good enough. We can do better than that. Um, ultimately, where is the move on? Interestingly, in order to apply for accommodation from your local authority in which you are resident, you need at least six months in order to fill your local the requirement for you to have a local connection. Mm. So at the six-month point, if a person is asked to leave by their host, they will have enough for a local connection. We're talking about largely children uh, and mums, so they would be in priority need. Um, so I would imagine that what's going to happen is you're going to see a very large number of people, depending on how many come through the scheme, approach their local authority in six months' time and ask to be accommodated by them. Ultimately, this scheme does not address the refugee homes crisis that exists in the UK. And that's the real concern here. What we'll be doing is the benefit of this scheme was to offer quick routes mm -hmm. to people fleeing a situation. Well, here we are a month after the war. There's no quick routes. We haven't offered any quick routes to people fleeing. Mm -hmm. um, and then you, so, so what we've done is taken over a month to arrive at a situation that's going to offer someone no real sustainable routes to safety in the United Kingdom. Hmm. It's just, it's, it's announcements to the public to appease pressure without really any, any strategy behind it or thinking behind it. It all sounds very, very curious. It looks like there's a, there's so many gaps. My my one concern about this whole thing that I I suppose people would have thought about quite a lot is if they were generally not getting along with the person who they would have openly wanted to host, but it was just not working out. What sort of remedies are they for? The, the refugee themselves to move from one sponsor to another or for the local authority to take this over in like a period where everyone can be safe? In reality, the local authorities are going to have to step into that, that relationship. And, you know, let's be clear, with the very best of intentions, there will be relationship breakdowns in this in in, in this scheme. It's inevitable. Yeah. Human beings are human beings. You might yeah. not like each other. You might not get along. You know, hmm. one might be tidy, one might be messy. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. It, it happens. It's like that's what life is. Um, so, you know, for the most beautiful 
hearts and minds around this space, there will be relationship breakdown through no one's fault. Um, particularly for six months. Six months is a long time to have a stranger living in your home. It is. You know? Mm. I mean, you spend your Christmas with your family and you're done, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, with the um, best will in the world. Well. <laughs> yeah. you, you love them, yeah. but you're like, I need to leave now, mm. or you need to leave my house now. Um, so, you know, six months is a long time. There will be relationship breakdowns, and I know that God loved them. Local authorities are trying to plan for that eventuality. But mm -hmm. again, we're asking them to do that without properly thinking that through, without resourcing them, without giving them clear guidance on how they step in, when they step in, where they're supposed to put people. What we're seeing uh, on a sort of area by area level is local authorities just going, right, how can we make this work? How can we, they're as frightened about this as we are. How can we make this work? How can we take care of people to the very best possible way that we can, given the fact we've got not a lot of resources, we've got not a lot of notice, and we haven't got any control or say in the agenda that sits behind it? Yeah, it it looks like there are a lot of issues that are quite reasonably foreseeable here that are going to be very difficult and very challenging. Let's move on to, to businesses. So Michael Goh's statement says that businesses can bring people over to the UK and can also be part of the scheme. Um, in a freedom of information request that came out today, we now know that 70% of people who are working on farms, these are seasonal workers, are Ukrainian nationals. So that's some 14 and a half to 15 and a half thousand people who've been on one year visas those visas will be extended to 2024, but they come with the restriction for people to work on those farms alone. How safe is this whole thing of businesses being able to bring people over and to tie them to one job for a three-year period? So I think there's a, there's a, there's a few different um, things at play here. And mm. I, I don't think the, the guidance and the, I don't think the guidance or the announcements lend themselves to clarity very easily. Um, so Gove referenced um, a phase two of your homes for Ukraine that will uh, be a, a super sponsor phase in England. Mm -hmm. um, my understanding is Scotland and Wales um, very wisely have already moved to a super sponsor phase. So the government are being the super sponsors in those regions. And that right. means that people are moving into hotel accommodation while they vet and check the hosting matches and they'll only be released to those hosting matches after the government are confident that it's a safe and sustainable arrangement, which is very wise. We haven't done that in England. In England, we haven't yet seen the guidance on the super sponsor phase. I actually think I'm very interested in the super sponsor phase. I think it could, it could, mm -hmm be quite good if enough charities and NGOs get around that. The idea is, I think, although as I said, we haven't seen the guidance yet, that, that the organisations, businesses, charities can come together to sponsor a group of refugees to, to, to bring them into the country in a planned way. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the reason I think it could be quite good is I think that 
there are massive problems with the existing post-Ukraine scheme about reaching those most vulnerable mm. because it requires a Ukrainian refugee to navigate social media, find themselves a match, blah, blah, blah. And actually, those most vulnerable won't necessarily have the capacity to do that. I think that introducing NGOs and businesses to combine and collaborate means that together we can work with international NGOs to try and identify those most vulnerable and bring them in the country into plan safe way. And you can offer really, really good targeted specialist support. So you could have a mental health charity. Uh, you could have an LGBT charity targeting LGBT refugees. We've seen massively distressing scenes from minoritized Ukrainians trying to get out of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. You, you, could ta- you could start to target some of those minority communities and offer them a really accessible route, which would be really exciting. I think there's also, um, although you're right, there are risks to it. There are main risks to all of these things so that we need to see really, really good and robust safeguards in place for that. Then we've got obviously the existing working visa arrangements. And we know that there are already a significant amount of Ukrainians in the UK on those temporary seasonal worker visas. I think the, the key problem with those is you're quite right. It, you know, it, it, if it ties to one particular employment or a particular employer, then it can give rise to a lot of exploitation. I think the other things around them is that they don't always give, depending on how long the visa's for and what specific visa it is, it doesn't give access to the family Ukraine family visa scheme. So there are Ukrainians right here in the UK right now who are not able to apply to have their family join them like other Ukrainians are that's, in the UK. That's not sustainable, though. They'll have to change that, won't they, Louise? Oh, I, I never use the word have or must around the, around the government sometimes. It's been like that for a month and they haven't changed it. No, but they, they can't, surely they can't be seen to discriminate between people who are seasonal workers and other Ukrainians merely because those are seasonal workers. But they are. Currently, depending on what sort of visa you have, you may and may not have access to Ukraine visa scheme. Okay, so what what happens if that Ukrainian decides at the end of that visa, which is limited, to claim asylum? Absolutely, they can. And then, that's, and then actually, is the asylum system the right place for a Ukrainian or for any other nationality that we're talking about? The asylum system is one of, is just significantly traumatising in the UK. It's one of the most punishing systems. You know, living on under £6 a day hmm. for an indefinite period, taking longer and longer to make an asylum decision in horrific housing conditions, um, or even disused army barracks, the asylum system is not the right place for any damaged or traumatised individual, regardless of nationality. And it's certainly not necessary to push a whole nationality through the asylum system when there is very clearly and obviously a protection need. But we are in a situation where I have absolutely no doubt that some Ukrainians will need to go through the asylum system in order to, 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 to gain status in the UK. Because... Because our government is doing the minimum possible, regardless of the headlines. Wow, that's that's remarkable. 
It's remarkable that we could get to a stage like that. So we spoke earlier about how there are some over 11,000 people who've come from Afghanistan, who've been staying in hotels for, for over eight months now. What, what happens then? Because the British public have shown this amazing sympathy and empathy for Ukrainians who they're opening up their homes to, so many people have fatigue of being in, in hotels. I, I can't imagine living in a hotel for eight months. At some point, will those Afghans be eligible to go into these homes for Ukraine scheme? Or is it just for Ukrainians? moment it's just for Ukrainians. Um, I think that if we can prove a safe model here, mm-hmm. Um, that has a much better mix of A, safeguards, B, resources, and C, meaningful collaboration Mm -hmm. around all of the experts. If we can prove a better model, then I think it it could offer solutions to a broader range of nationalities. Um, Personally, I don't support the call for Afghans in hotels to have access to this scheme. Um, but I do absolutely support the call for people fleeing broader conflict to have access to this scheme as a route to safety in the UK. Talk about some of the racist narrative around how we see refugees Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and the role of race in how we see those refugees. And the fact that, you know, we've had a, a vicious war in Yemen going on and actually there's been very little pickup of, of the people fleeing that. Um, the, the, the significant and prolonged displacement of some of the refugees in other parts of the world. And actually that's the role for a, a, a new hybrid hosting scheme. Let's offer more safe routes to those refugees. I think when it comes down to the Afghans in hotels, I tend to not look at it too technically, but look at it firstly, human first. Mm. Nathan, if I said to you, thanks for waiting your eight months in this traveling hotel, because most of them are like you know, traveler's hotels, as I, I like to think of them, you know, small rooms built yeah. for short stays. Nathan, if I said to you, thanks for waiting for these eight months, we found you someone's spare room for six months. What would you say to me, Nathan? I'm unlikely to want to go there. I mean, that's a very difficult situation to... You'd rather stay in that place rather than move on to the same thing over again. Precisely. Again, you know, I think sometimes in the refugee and asylum sector, sometimes I think we can can get very caught in the technicality, you Mm. know, of, of, of different rules and different applications of things. But actually, let's boil it back. Human behavior... People in those hotels, and I, I go to those hotels, I'm there at least every week in our, in our hotels. And I have noticed over the last few months a, a growing deterioration in people's appearances, um, symptomatic of a, de- depreci- a deterioration in their, in their health, in their mental health. What we've done is we, we plucked them out from a quite catastrophic situation in Afghanistan. 
most of them had to leave people uh, mm. in some cases spouses in some cases parents um, brothers sisters and we put them into uh, usually city city hotels mm-hmm. London Manchester city hotels that were quiet during the pandemic and we've left them there for eight months and they have become very institutionalized within that hotel environment. They've also become only familiar with the immediate surrounding to their hotel. And they're frightened. They're frightened of leaving that very protective bubble that we built for them now. Mm. And so where accommodation becomes available for them, it's typically not within those cities that they've been hosted in their hotels because you know, accommodation isn't in plentiful supply in those cities, but it's in further flung areas. And there's not enough support being given to people to help them build their confidence, to help introduce them to those areas, um, and to help them in that transition from that deeply institutional environment to that home-based environment in a different area, in a different location. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I take it, always take it back to how would I feel in that situation? And actually, if the situation was re- reversed and I had been evacuated to Afghanistan from the UK and I didn't speak the language and I didn't have any family or friends and I was put in a hotel that I felt safe in for eight months, how would I then feel about being moved to rural Afghanistan? I wouldn't feel very safe. I wouldn't, that would be a big step for me to take. And so the situation around hotels is really complex. Mm-hmm. The availability of housing stock is one element of it because there isn't enough homes at the moment for all of those 11,500. But there's also not enough support for people in, in understanding the way that the British housing system works and building their confidence to reach outside of their institutionalised immediate environment. Um, and certainly, in my view, Homes for Ukraine will do nothing to help with that situation. We must stop searching for Band-Aids and start thinking from a human-first perspective, understanding the world and their lived experience through it, and start finding meaningful strategic and structural solutions to these because they do exist. Mm-hmm. Um, we just aren't, don't seem to be ever talking and exploring proactively. We're constantly reacting. We're constantly seem to be fighting. What about from a refugee sector perspective, we're fighting for more. Mm-hmm. And the government tend to be fighting to do less. And you only have to see that play out through the the the, the borders borders bill uh, last week. I mean, you know, at a time in which we've got the government trumpeting homes for Ukraine and open your homes to refugees, mm-hmm. we're pushing through one of the most pernicious pieces of legislation this country's ever seen, never mind the refugee and asylum sector, but ever. Mm. I mean, the... You refer to the Nationality on Borders Bill, um, which, which, as you say, is very pernicious and, and very regressive. It, it seems to me the asylum system, pretty Patel, always says it, that, that it's broken and that this new plan for immigration that she has 
will fix that. But on the face of it, if that build does pass, it does look like it's increasingly going to become very, very difficult for anyone to make any sort of asylum claim here. What, what do you what do you make of it? Absolutely that. I think her 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 way of fixing it is to basically um, stop anyone accessing it. That's certainly not my not my definition of fixing it. Um, you know, the, the, let's be clear: the, the Nationality and Borders Bill basically does away with refugee protection in the United Kingdom because mm. there's two principal routes to refugee protection um, and, and some complementary pathways, but two principal routes, and that's refugee resettlement and the asylum system. There is no pledge to refugee resettlement in the Nationality and Borders Bill. This is the first year in a long time that we've never pledged one, not even one place, mm. towards global resettlement. Um, le last year, less than 2% of refugees waiting for resettlement were resettled globally, globally. There's around a 20-year, 25-year backlog of refugees waiting for resettlement, and we have not pledged one space in this country. So that's your first route, not covered by the nationality and borders. And the second route is the asylum system. And that bill says that if you come in this country through an irregular route, hmm. then you're going to be criminalised, what, What's an irregular route? Well, irregular route means not travelling as a commercial passenger. So, um, you know, we, we've seen that play out through Ukraine. We've seen the government insist on visas for Ukrainians. And that's exactly why people get in boats and make dangerous crossings, which we deem to be irregular routes, because they're not illegal routes. It's not illegal to get in a boat across the water, despite what the government would have you believe. It's irregular, not illegal. So why do people make those journeys, those dangerous journeys? Because they can't get a visa because the British government will not give you a visa to enter the UK if they have the slightest suspicion that you're going to claim asylum. They will not give you a visa to enter the UK unless you can prove that you have the wealth to support yourself throughout your stay here. So we know that there are a lot of people that won't have access to visas, that will have to travel irregularly. Um, goodness knows we've had a struggle with the Home Office around Ukraine. And there could not be, I don't think there has been, a war that's been so visual in the UK. Mm. We've seen that footage on our TV and it has been devastating every night. So if we're not if we're not going to allow Ukrainians to come to the UK without a visa, what chance has has an Eritrean got? Mm. Yeah, because well, they've they've externalized the border haven't they? Yes, so exactly. if you if you can't get a visa, if you arrive you here then through some other route, um, Pretty Patel keeps on referring to passing through a safe country um, and having to claim asylum there first. It, it seems like they're rowing back from the Refugee Convention because be. the, the tenets of the Refugee Convention are that 
the Jewish community and who lost some six million people mostly couldn't leave the countries that they were in because of prior authorization. And that's why 70 years on, the Refugee Convention was signed. So it's very difficult for me to process this whole thing about, given that history, why is Britain doing this? I think that our lack of policy around refugee and asylum, because it is a lack of policy, that there is no, there is no discernible proactive policy that acknowledges the reality of people being forced to flee in Priti Patel's borders bill. For me, it's a lack of policy. And I think that lack of policy is built on racist rhetoric and xenophobia. Um, and it, it, it takes advantage of our geographical position as an island and forces people, uh, to make those dangerous journeys and then demonizes them as illegal or economic when it is patently clear in the refugee convention mm. that they're not, that they have an absolute right to claim asylum in the UK and there is no requirement on people to claim asylum in their first safe country. The Refugee Convention was very clear that actually that's poor practice because what that happens then is that you have a congregation, you have a, a cluster of, of refugees needing high support in certain key regions um, and that are typically poorer countries have to bear the emotional, the emotional and economic hmm. um, cost of hosting the world's refugees. That doesn't make any sense at all. Um, but in, actually, that, that, that's how it's playing out in reality. You know, if you look at Afghanistan, for example, even before the fall of Kabul and the, mo the move to Taliban government, that region, Pakistan, was already a significant refugee hosting country. Um, now they're hosting significant numbers of Afghans as well. So are they just supposed to stay in Pakistan forever and not move anywhere? It's just, you know, and why should people stay in France? If you play it down to the Tory road, you see, oh, well, last time I checked, France was a safe country. Well, it's not, actually. Go and, go and be a refugee in Calais and tell me that that feels safe to you. Why should people have to stay in France? Why should France have to be the gatekeeper to the asylum system in the UK? Um, we know, and we're seeing it through Ukraine, actually, we know that reasonably small numbers of people want to come to the UK. And it's usually because they speak the language or they have family, friends or business links here in the UK. Um, and it's, it feels safe to them. Mm. And we're seeing through Ukraine, actually, the numbers of people wanting to come to the UK are actually relatively modest compared to the 3.5 million people that UNHCR say have been displaced because we're seeing play out what we always know to be true. If you're displaced, you want to stay as close to your home country as possible, typically, and you want to stay in the region in which you've been displaced because it feels more familiar to you. There are a minority that will want to travel further afield because they have a specific link to that country. Now, 
why can we not just have, I'm sounding naive, mm. but an asylum system that is accessible to all, mm-hmm. that can make swift and effective decisions about people's need for protection in this country. We've got an asylum system that is broken in terms of its decision-making. We've seen with the most recent asylum uh, immigration statistics, it's taking longer and longer to make a decision on the Home Office. We know that they make too many decisions wrong in the first instance and push people through appeal processes, which again delays things and causes a huge cost to the taxpayer. Um, We know that principally asylum seekers are banned from working for the first year and then only after that once they've applied under the shortage occupation list so they're banned from paying tax mm-hmm. and they're forced to live in, in 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 housing which is utterly traumatizing for them if we turn that on its head and just say let's acknowledge that some people are going to want to come here and claim asylum let's make better decisions quicker move people through the system quicker let them work Mm-hmm. so that they can pay tax let them find their accommodation because they've usually come here for a reason then we wouldn't have the level of crisis that we're seeing at the moment the crisis that we're seeing in the uk at the moment is a crisis of policy and design a very very poor functioning system and we're using that poor functioning system or our government is as an excuse for not doing more for ukrainians and for all the other nationalities and that's unacceptable um, it's unacceptable from our government. It's unacceptable from our political leaders. Mm. On that impassioned plea, thank you so much for speaking to us, Louise. Thank you so much, Nathan. Thank you so much to Louise and her team at Refugee Action. The work that they do around safeguarding and ensuring refugees are treated with dignity and respect is really, really vital and I have no doubt that some of you listening will be hosting Ukrainians and you'll have found Louise's insight really helpful, but also alarmed at the lack of regulation and the whole light touch laser fair, find a refugee on Facebook approach by this government. It could have some really grave and serious implications for very vulnerable people. So to learn more about what actions you can take to support Louise's work, go to refugeeaction.org.uk and look for the get involved button if you're a new listener to the pod a really warm welcome don't forget to hit the subscribe button and share this episode with your friends and family we'll be following up on all the key issues louise raised in future episodes so until the next episode when we'll be speaking to another very special guest thanks for listening and goodbye